So it is time for our kids' corner. Kids, I'm going to meet you out here in the sunny spot, a little bit further away from the speaker, so I don't pick up too much feedback here. Isn't it nice to be out here in the sun instead of in a stuffy old building? <laughs> so I have a story for you that I want to begin with, and, and it goes kind of like this. When I was a little kid, I was kind of motivated to push myself further and further and see what I could do. Like I'd go out and ride my bike and realize I went five miles, and then I thought, well, maybe I could go seven. And if I got there, maybe I could go ten, right? Do you ever do something like that? Feel that kind of motivation? Yeah, maybe not so much. Well, one of the things that I did, you know, see, there was this old pine tree, and I climbed that up. I got good at climbing. So, actually, am I picking up feedback here anyway? Maybe I need to. Um, I got good at climbing, so I climbed this pine tree, and I got up high enough, and I wondered if I could get up a little higher. I could see over top of the house, right? Well, I got up high enough, and then all of a sudden, the whole top of the tree just bent backward on the side that I was on, and I ended up falling down through the tree all the way to the ground, and I was, uh, it was enough of a fall to wonder if I was going to survive it on the way down, but I got up and brushed myself off and amazingly walked away from that without any trouble, but here's where I'm getting, what I'm getting at, you know. Probably my ability to climb outpaced my, my judgment, right? You know what judgment is? That's kind of looking at situations and deciding, you know, maybe I better not do that. That might not work out as well as I think it might. Anyway, what I wanted to zero in on, though, was the ability to learn to climb. Do you know... Why are you guys in school and people our age mostly were out of school? What do you think? Well, let me let me see if I can help you out with this. Who is it easier to teach a new language to, a three-year-old child or a thirty-year-old person? Yeah, the three-year-old, right? Turns out that kids are really great at learning new things like languages and how to read and do math and all of those sorts of things. And the older you get, the harder it becomes to make those connections. See, what learning really is, is about making connections. It's just two nerves connecting together. We really still don't understand how this works because it's not like your memories or learning actually take up some kind of space like they would on a computer desk, right? They're just sort of in there, all connected together. And that's what learning is. But so there's also something more to this. When you learn something and you feel like you get a reward from it, it makes a deeper connection. Now, maybe you've heard now that, you know, there's a story that goes something like this. In adult life, Women remember everything, and guys, we don't remember so much, right? Is that put delicately enough, congregation, right? Um, <laughs> okay. Well, part of the reason for this is if you can tie an emotion into an event, 
it cuts and creates a really deep nerve path. And it's harder than to forget, and it doesn't get let go as easily. Okay? So here's where I'm going with this. You know, most of this is actually a good thing. If you win, you feel good about it. When you succeed, you feel good about it. And actually, the harder it was to succeed, the better you feel, and the deeper that connection becomes. And this launches you off into a trajectory in life where you can do hard things, right? All of this happens because chemicals are released in our body. They're called hormones. And again, most of this is good. The problem is sometimes it's bad. Sometimes things like drugs and alcohol, tobacco, all of these things tinker with the body's chemistry, and they can create kind of that emotional feeling, that pathway to the good feeling, without actually having to go out and do the hard things that get you there. So, so it's especially important for kids to stay away from that stuff, right? You know, because the older you are when you first encounter those things, the less likely it is to create such a deep connection. You guys are never in your life going to forget the things that you are two and two is what? Or, right, almost instantaneously, you know it. But that also happens with these other connections. And this is what I want to talk about today with the adults, okay? So that's what this is about. All right, let me have at it with the older people. And so. May the words in my mouth and the meditations of my heart be accepting in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Now, it should seem clear that if we change the way we think, this should bring about changes in the way we behave on the outside, right? But we all know that isn't so easy. And this is the reason why the ancients saw wickedness and craving. They saw the body, actually, as the source of wickedness and craving. Therefore, the body was what was evil. The body was the problem. The body was seen as corrupt. And when the Apostle Paul argued in Athens that the body can be used to serve righteousness, the crowd probably would have thought, ah, not this dirty old body. Who would want that thing? But Paul went so far as to claim that the body is the shrine of the Holy Spirit and that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to redeem the body as well. Now, recalling back, the source of human ruin is placing oneself at the center of one's own universe. In other words, making a God of myself. We said that apart from God, this is the natural human default condition. And when we're in that position, our body tends to govern our lives. This is what the Bible means when it says living according to the flesh. It's not surprising in this case that the body becomes the primary source of gratification, of getting what we want, 
we seek admiration and other gratification, power, all these things that lead to these chemical rewards, these emotional highs that I was talking to the kids about. This is actually a perversion of the role of the body in life as God intends it. And it's for that reason that living according to the body is death. It's a perversion because from the biblical perspective, the body controls the mind and it acts as the spirit ought in this situation. And this mislocation of the body explains many of the problems facing our world. The sexualization of practically everything, eating disorders, discrimination, power struggles, manipulation, most of these things are rooted in our body, losing our temper. Instead, Christians are called to live according to the Spirit through the will of God and, and make the will of God align with our will. Let us make our will His will and His will our will. The Holy Spirit must retake control and, and it must function as the, in the mind as it ought. The spirit does not die like the body. A spirit-controlled mind is set on eternal things. So the bodily-controlled mind, when I'm looking after things of the body, I'm chasing after things in the day-to-day, -day, things that are going to pass away anyway. But when I pursue things of the mind, things of the spirit, I'm pursuing things that are eternal in nature. But I might ask, can my body really become an ally in the move toward Christ-likeness? And the answer is that it absolutely must. The body lies right at the center of the spiritual life. Through the body, the spirit has access to the physical world. And yet, for many, the body remains the primary barrier conformity to Jesus Christ because we've hardwired it from our youth for addictions and desires, for pleasure, for comfort that constantly run ahead of our good intentions, contrary to the will of God. Paul tells us that those that live by the flesh, that is, people that merely live by human power, power based only in our own ability and our own body. They have their minds set, that is, that they are preoccupied with the flesh. That is what they can do or get on their own. That this is ultimately death, since it's focused primarily on things that are going to pass away anyway, and since no one can overcome death by the power of their own body anyway. Paul says that such a mind is naturally hostile to God. It's hostile to God because God threatens its God. If my God, the thing that drives me, is my own desire, my own self becomes God. And God is hostile to that position. For this reason, sin, and therefore death, reign over human life. Any redemption that omits the body cannot be a full redemption. We need to take a little detour here for a second and describe how the Bible sees personal formation. So my body 
is the only way, the only source I have to access satisfaction in the physical world. It's through my body that I have a world in the first place to live in. All my experience comes through my body. Only through my body I receive a place in time and space in the human history. Through it I receive a family, a society, a gender, a language, a culture, a set of talents that I can use to affect society. From here, I take on identity. That is dominion over my body, and I begin to generate my own realm. So when the Bible is talking about kingdom, this is what it's talking about. My own kingdom, in which I'm driven by my desires, channeled by my ideas, my sensations, my emotions. I come to have a history, which forms a track record from which I cannot escape. I soon run into the realities contrary to my will, and they don't yield to me. Often these are the realms of other individuals, organized according to their desires and contrary to my own. My, my body begins to experience destructive emotions, fear, anger, envy, jealousy, resentment. Attitudes of hostility develop that keep me focused on myself and lead me to care less about other people and maybe even willing to hurt and harm others. And if the solutions that I put in place to handle these negative emotions create uh, new pathways toward reward, as they often do in emotional situations, my body learns negative ways to feel rewarded. What we call character, then, is what our bodies stand ready to do in whatever situation we find ourselves, and to a large extent, these readinesses run our lives. So what then is the kingdom of God to be lived out in the body of Christ? Well, it's the only realm in which we can live that our overlapping personal realms don't cause these destructive emotions and feelings. As a church, then, we're called to function as a unified, as a single body, rather than each trying to gain ground in our own realm. But how do we do this? Again, it all, it all begins by allowing the Holy Spirit to indwell. That means the will of God takes over in our heart, so that we want what God wants. Without the help of supernatural perspective, this is impossible. It's impossible to live the way above the ways of natural man. We're to know God's heart, to hear his voice, and then do accordingly. Paul says that we're to kill off our members upon the earth. That is, the parts of life that are lived entirely in terms of the power of the natural body. These are not what comes from heaven. They're not supernatural powers. And it's these things that lead us to impurity and the list that Kathy read, the passions, the evil desires um, that Paul calls idolatry. And they're idolatry because they are in rebellion to God. They're placing another God on the throne, usually the God of self. And this God is contrary to the nature of 
God and therefore inherently at war with God and subject to his wrath. So Paul, for example, lists his own accomplishments, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, all of these things Paul counts as nothing because they're done by or only important to merely natural human reason. There is no, no spiritual value, whatever, and therefore they're nothing. They die with us. So even following the law, if it's merely to look like a better person among people, is nothing. It has no greater value. In other words, they're nice qualifications, but as Christians, we're called to receive a different life uh, with different qualifications, spiritual qualifications. Instead of using our bodies as weapons of wickedness, that is to serve our own purposes, which are contrary to God, we are by supernatural grace through the gospel and the words of scripture and grace provided by that indwelling Holy Spirit, able to use our bodies instead as weapons of righteousness. That is to serve God's purposes. And this releases us from slavery to sin and enslaves us, that is, makes us dependent upon God. The benefit is sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. That is, life that is really life, as, as Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.19 calls it, living for eternal purposes. The outcome of spiritual formation, that is, being born again, the rebirth of the spirit, is the transformation of the inner reality of the self in such a way that our self longs to follow the will of God and becomes a new natural expression of who we are. When we come to new life in God, those old programs are still running in our body. Though they can no longer bring us death, since our identity has now been changed before God, it's been shifted to a new life with a new spirit that aligns to his, this is the transitional state we find ourselves in. Our spirits are now willing, but our flesh is weak. But it is no longer I, it is no longer the spirit in me that's running the show, but rather sin that still functions as a living force in members of my body. The tendencies we have hardwired into our bodies, continue to continue moving our bodies into action, independent of and contrary to the Holy Spirit, even with our willful intention to overcome. But by presenting our bodies as living sacrifice, that is, not caving into and doing what our bodies want, and instead yielding to God, until those old connections are broken and we're transformed into conformity to the age to come. This happens as our body feeds back into our mind and our minds become renewed and we no longer think in the evil ways we once did. 
So imagine your body now experiencing a reward for doing what God wants it to do and rewiring those old pathways toward following the Spirit. So in conclusion, here's what we're to do. It seems to me we need to lose those areas that are not spirit-centered control. You know, we know what they are. I mean, maybe it's just losing our temper. Those things should call us into prayer. We need to set reasonable and attainable goals. That at least can be helpful. Look, if I go out and set the goal that I'm going to run five miles every day, what's going to happen? I'm going to fail, right? And what I do, I've now disincentivized, de-rewarded my brain. I've convinced it that I will fail. So start with simple things, changes of attitude, being able to be forgiving, to restrain anger, being able to love the unlovable. Go of small bitterness and instead praying. This still requires action on our part, prayerfully releasing our body to God and allowing Him to use and, and protect it. That is, I'm not saying that we should forget about healthy living, but rather adopt the attitude of, I'm living for you, God, and I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. I'm not going to try and manipulate situations any longer. Along the same lines, we need to stop idolizing our body. After all, we've taken our hands off the outcomes. And fourth, we need to stop misusing our body as a source of gratification or dominance or manipulation. Stop the addictions which or at least stop accepting that, that they are required and necessary and keep repeating them. Lastly, have faith. It is working. It does work. Give yourself credit when you succeed. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you.